You're listening to the Inside Study Abroad podcast, episode number one. Welcome to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts. In this show, we explore the world of international education and meaningful travel with some fascinating guests, a little friendly debate, and a whole lot of practical advice. Let's get going. Welcome to the show, guys. I am so, so excited to be bringing you the first ever episode of the Inside Study Red podcast. I feel like I've been saying that a lot lately. Recording podcasts, really hard. But I'm so excited to bring this to you. This has sort of been a an idea and something I've been thinking about for, gosh, years at this point. And I'm so excited to be bringing it to you guys. Without further ado, what I want to do is just bring on my first guest. And I'm really excited to have her on the show and have her as my inaugural guest and hopefully many more visits to come. But today I have on the show Cynthia Banks. Now, for those of you who don't know who Cynthia is, shame on you, first of all. But second of all, you are in for a great treat. Cynthia has kind of been a hero of mine for a while. A hero definitely from afar before I ever met her. I sort of idolized her in a lot of ways. and But then when I got to know her, her she definitely has become more of a mentor and someone I really look up to, someone I would go to for advice and uh, just to get her thoughts. So for those of you who don't know Cynthia, she is originally the founder of AustraLearn. And if you guys know the evolution of that company, AustraLearn became Global Links. And then Global Links, then um, in the last year almost now, they uh, merged with ISA, International Studies Abroad. And so she's actually stepped away from her company her baby and we'll get into that in the interview and is now embarking on a lot of other things and I have her official bio here but I think um, it's better if you hear her story and uh, where she's going and we'll talk a lot about the new projects she's got going on including the Global Leadership League uh, the Foundation for Global Scholars and just all these other ideas she's kind of got up her sleeve but what I'm really excited to share is how she kind of got started as you guys know I work with a lot of people who are currently trying to break into the field and it's not an easy road and people are learning that it's a really challenging sort of small little community that we've created for it it's really challenging to break in sometimes and I always like going back to the beginning especially for people who seemingly are really successful right now and hearing about their early days and how they got started how they broke in and what they did to sort of stand out and and draw attention to themselves in order to really create these great careers doing work that they really love. So Cynthia's story is really, really inspiring for me. She's a wonderful person to know. So if you ever have a chance to chat with her, definitely do it. Don't be like me and sort of lurk from the sidelines for many years. I was so intimidated. I just thought, oh, how could I ever talk to Cynthia Banks? And now I just feel silly ever thinking that. But She's wonderful. She's super friendly and nice, and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Cynthia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Let's get started with having you tell us your story and how did you get to where you are today? Thanks, Brooke. Um, well, it's great to share this story. It's uh, taken me a lot of reflection over the last 25 years, but I'll just try and succinctly tell you a couple things I remember from so long ago. Um, I am a native of Colorado, and I graduated with a bachelor in business at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Surprisingly, most people don't know, I had to pay my way through most of my school, so I was not a study abroad student when I was in college. 
And that's because I couldn't afford it also at the time. Um, but I started as a young entrepreneur at age 24. And how I got there was that on graduation, I really had thought about taking a job with one of those big firms, you know, like IBM or somebody like that. I ended up being asked by a marketing professor I had studied with if I wanted to be his resident assistant and take a group of undergrads to travel in Australia. Um, it was in Australia while I was there for the semester that I was asked by the universities to do a research project. They wanted to know if more Americans would want to ever study in Australia. And surprisingly, most of us can't remember, probably in 1988-89, there really were not many study abroad groups going to that part of the world. So when we came back, we did a research project and learned a lot about international education. And certainly, I think there was a need for that. Um, it was interesting because about eight months into the project, they decided they were going to pull the funding and allocate it to something else at the university. And I decided, with their blessing, um, that I would go it alone. So while it was scary, uh, I actually decided to start a company called AustraLearn, and that's what kind of led to us becoming a provider of study abroad to Australia. That That's really incredible. So I have to ask, was this your first moment in your story, in your life, really, where that sort of entrepreneurial spark was lit? Do you have examples from your childhood or growing up where you sort of exhibited some of these entrepreneurial tendencies? Or is this the first moment where you're like thinking, I, I can do this, I could, I could try to start something on my own? You know, it's interesting, Brooke, I often think about what an entrepreneurial kind of strategy is, uh, or like how that how the skills are. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I think I'm sure I ran a lemonade stand when I was a little girl. And I'm sure I was out <laughs> in the street flagging cars down for it. Um, I think I was always fairly independent, and business appealed to me quite a lot. The process of business, um, not just, it's not a people think business is making money. I think the process of business is how to get a system to work well together, mm -hmm. uh, you know, toward a successful end. So I can't think of any other particular examples um, other than maybe my lemonade stand. Right. Uh, but I may have been inclined to be running something on my own. How did you start that process? Like, what did that look like back in 1989? Well, as I often speak, I speak a lot in different university classes. Um, I start with the question of, I wonder if anybody knows what was missing in 1989. <laughs> uh, and they're really smart because they usually say the World Wide Web. And I say, absolutely. Uh, email did not exist when I started my business. Uh, everything I did was on a fax machine. Uh, the rolled up paper, you know, you put back in your file folders and then the ink disappears after a couple months. Yeah. Um, this was really a lot of the process. Back then, we had to get all of the information for what it would take to even travel to Australia, what it was like to live there. And we were the provider of the information. So the greatest thing was people needed us at that time because they couldn't get the information anywhere else. And of course, today, literally, you can go onto the internet and find anything you want to and probably, uh, you know, even study abroad yourself without too much difficulty. Well, so and so you started this company and then what, how did you land, you know, how did you convince those first students to take a risk on this young woman, you know, new business, new location, new sort of strategy for international education? Uh, how did you get them to sort of say yes? Yeah, you know, Brooke, I, I guess when I went out and I started to talk to people, I would say I would get 90% rejection and 10% and maybes. Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> That's very difficult. And certainly you have to keep your chin up and get into the car or to the airplane the next day and go back and ask for more support. 
uh, at the time, not many people were doing programs in Australia. And I think there was a, a certain sense of fascination about the country. And because we didn't have the internet, because it was a new thing, I think people were relying on organizations like mine to provide them information they didn't have. Mm -hmm. So if nothing else, the 10% that were willing to listen began to see that we were willing and able to offer a program to Australia that was much more affordable than anything that was being offered. And in addition, we had a real passion to put the students inside the classroom with the Australian students and into the dormitories with the Australian students um, or international students and really give them a true immersion experience. And as we've all learned with English-speaking destinations, I think the greater we can connect the cultures together, the more impactful the experience can be. Yeah, definitely. And sorry, I'm just going to keep going into this because I'm so fascinated with this process. But And so what, what happened from there? I mean, when did you know that you that this could be a viable company, that you could keep trudging forward and, and, and really grow it to, to what it you know, ended up being? And that may be just right place, right time. And some of it was a bit of perseverance and a lot of diligence <laughs> in getting through. Uh, first of all, I didn't make really any salary for the first couple years. Mm -hmm. You know, when you raise a true entrepreneurial business, it's always on uh, the bootstrap or the shoestring, as they say, but it really, you just don't have much many funds. Uh, in the first semester, we sent two students to study abroad, and it was so exciting. And in the second term, I think we sent 25. And Whoa. probably by about the third semester, we were up over 100. There certainly was an interest in going to Australia. People wanted that experience. Um, I would suggest that the business was viable because eventually I had more business than I knew what to do with. And I needed to hire professional staff. I needed to professionalize what we were doing. Um, and it just became evident that we really had hit on something that people were looking for. One of the things I love about your story and is the fact that you are, well, I mean, even to this day, obviously, but you're a strong female entrepreneur uh, and CEO and founder, which frankly, as, as one myself, it's very hard to find great examples of that. Um, or they're just not talked about as much. And, and, it, and especially in international education, where when we look at sort of, especially the provider side, it's very male dominated in terms of the leadership and founder CEO level. And I'm just curious, what, what, what kind of audacious qualities and characteristics did you have that helped you be successful, especially in such a male dominated environment? Yeah, Brooke, that's a good question. I, I often look back. There are so many women that were inspiring to me through all the years. So there are many out there. They're probably uh, either, you know, into their senior years or people that I was always looking up to. Um, and there are a lot of people even currently that are inspirations that are trying to start their own enterprises like you, Brooke, or some of the other provider leading roles. Um, the thing that I think book back on is that you know, the idea of being a female CEO, I don't want to downplay the seriousness of what it means to run a business. I mean, getting a handle on HR, finance, legal, the process, I think you have to be really smart and capable of, of doing the actual work of the business. Um, but when I think about the word, of course, the most that comes to mind is just perseverance. I was raised by a father who never told me I was a woman. I know that sounds crazy, but mm -hmm. Uh, I only had a sister. And so in some ways, we were not raised with much gender bias in my family. And he worked in a corporation that he was teaching gender equality uh, back in, if you can believe it, the 70s, which was probably a real challenge for my dad. But he always taught me I could do anything. And so when it came to perseverance, the thing that that means for me 
is legitimately not looking for anything other than success and not believing that I would deserve any less. And so of all the things that I've done well, it's probably not to pay too much attention um, to the gender mm -hmm. that I face, even though I do know it's there. I have very blatant examples of many times I've been made to feel nothing but a woman, incapable uh, woman. But I would say overall, just kind of pushing through with that, holding your head up and just forging on has been the real, real success story for me. Yeah. Did you feel like that existed? Like when you went to your first few NAFSAs or um, different conferences in the space, did you, did it feel like an old boys network then? You know, I don't even know if it was such an old boys network, but I would certainly suggest that ageism was more of an issue than the sexism gotcha. issue. Being very young, I was 24 when I started my business. Uh, I think I was, uh, people weren't sure I would be successful because of my age more than my gender. Um, yeah. That was certainly more evident to me. Yeah, interesting. So let's talk about Global Links. I mean, this this is one of the most, you know, great success stories of international education. It's 25 years old, I believe, if I have my numbers right. And, um, you know, and looking at the historical elements, I mean, you, you navigated the company through two big financial downturns, if you think of like um, the late 90s, early 2000s, plus 9-11, and then, you know, even in 2008. I, you know, what were some of the hardest parts of, of navigating those waters in, in international education and the type of sort of products you were creating in the world? Uh, well, of course, being in travel, as we all are, putting students on airplanes, dealing with the world, there isn't any piece of news we don't see in the morning or the evening that doesn't somehow affect the kind of work that we do. Um, the financial downturns are, are definitely the most significant. Um, the stock market, the economy, how it affects people's ability to pay for college, let alone study abroad. I think that we still feel the pressure of this today. Mm -hmm. And I do know that one of the ceilings that keeps students from studying abroad and, and probably will be there for a long time is the financial impact of this. Um, so I would suggest in, in our organization, probably because we started as such a bootstrap startup, is the idea of being very frugal. Uh, it's a part of who I am. It's in my DNA. But I would suggest that we as an organization operated very frugally as well, investing the most in the best staff that we could get uh, and trying to take care of that piece of it. But I wouldn't suggest that we ever overinvested in other things. So maybe through the downturns, economically, our company stayed strong because we were not uh, we were not leveraged. We were not uh, overinvesting in things that weren't important to the actual service. I certainly would suggest on 9-11 you're waking up the next morning and understanding not only the impact to something on American soil, but I had 10 traveling staff out there at the time. Mm. That was the most traumatic moment is to wonder if anybody that had worked with us was okay, if their families were okay. And surprisingly, the biggest semester we ever had for students to study abroad, you know, at that time was the semester after 9-11. Really? Why do you think that was? I don't know. We used to contemplate because I assume most of us were thinking we would just lock the doors and walk away because we weren't sure that anybody in America would ever travel. Right. But there is something about the American spirit that must be this, you know, undefinable, we're just going to go out there anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and I really do think that America was not going to lay down and, and feel hurt over this to the point of, of stopping those kinds of experiences. That's all I can attribute it to, Brooke. Right. I'm not sure every other program felt that or we've right. ever even studied that in our field. Right. No, I, I was, that was going to be my next question in terms of 
if you felt like you were an, global links was an anomaly or if that was a trend sort of across across the field um but we'll ask other people to chime in on that yeah for sure for sure um, one of the, you know, related to this idea of, you know, we're talking about you've built this great business, but obviously it's a business rooted in an academic experience, which is something I'm always harping on. I always tell people, if you want to go travel, travel. I love it. But study abroad is rooted in academic work, uh, whatever that academic work can look like in different structures. But, you know, I think one of the most challenging things for me in my career, and, and I think one of the most interesting as well, has been how navigating this relationship between sort of business objectives and some capacities with an educational mission in it as well. And I, I don't know, what, what do you think about this topic and how do you think we need to approach this issue? I'm not even sure I would even suggest it's an issue. Brooke, let me ask you a question. I mean, okay. do you not think that, you know, after 25 years, if we look at international educators, I mean, are they not entrepreneurs themselves when you think about their own small enterprises and the kind of decisions they have to make, the fact that most of them have to self-support their own entities? I, I absolutely think that what we do is, is rooted in sort of a, an entrepreneurial sort of uh, business foundation and, and having to approach decisions made in offices and organizations. I, I absolutely agree that. I think what I always have been challenged with is more of the the reaction to even terminology used um, you know even the idea of talking about it as a field instead of an industry I you have no idea how many people have just given me that really bad stink eye you know if I slipped and called international education an industry and it's sort of a semantic um, you know top level issue but it, for me it feeds down to this idea that you know, if you're trying to, quote, make money, then you're against what we're really here and all about. And, and for me, it's just more of that underbelly. I think what we all are doing is a very business driven in terms of efficiencies and trying to deliver in terms of the best quality experiences and, you know, more participation, those things. I, I think those are all very much business approaches. But I, I feel like sometimes there's a divide, how some people sort of have opinions about if you're a business or not. Does that make sense? Well, it does. And I think there's always been an ongoing, and there will always be a certain sense of a divide between education and business. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you read the papers about higher education now, and they're looking at the outcome for overall higher education to be getting a job. Right. And, and what does that mean for the overall learning for the student? What does that mean for that, that personal and, and integrity development for them? I, I think that there is kind of always going to be this push and shove between business, you know, and what we define as education. Mm -hmm. um, many educators, and I'd suggest I've seen it for 25 years, mm -hmm. have come such a long ways in their appreciation of just business principles, such as marketing. I hate to use the word sales, so we say outreach. Mm -hmm. Um, but they understand that in order to get more students to study abroad, in order to talk to underrepresented students, for instance, you have to apply some of those, what we define as business principles, mm -hmm. in order to achieve those objectives. Yeah, I think the overall you know, run for profit or run for gold or whatever at the end, mm -hmm. I wouldn't even suggest I know many providers that operate their organizations that way. And so in some ways, it's possible to be a, an organization in the business side of it who is also upholding those academic standards. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I think 
from a functional level, I mean, I do a lot of coaching with people trying to break into the field and um, I have lots of colleagues who do some similar work and really, you know, just even on the side or chatting with people. And one of the th- challenges is that I'm always asked all the time, should I work for a provider or a university first? You know, what should have been my goal? And um, people will say to me that they've had conversations with people saying, work for university because you won't have as much respect if you work for a provider. And, <laughs> and, and for me, I just sort of, uh, if I think about my, the work, you know, I worked for my first quote unquote big kid job in the field was working for a provider an internship company based out of Boston. And, and I think about like the learning I did there and how much I grew personally, professionally, but also my knowledge base just from an international education field perspective was incredible, but to the, the idea that there's people out there who think that that experience was not as valuable, um, or that my my personal objectives and interests, and in, because of my position in that space, were not were not true to sort of our mission and vision in international education, which is just heartbreaking, you know. And so <laughs> I guess that's where I sort of I come from is like, how do we advise a sort of new crop of emerging professionals on on how to navigate one their careers, especially since it's so competitive. But two, also sort of understanding these sort of the little bit of an underbelly, the stuff we don't really talk about other than, I guess, on this podcast. And so, um, you know, and, and how to navigate that and just understand that maybe some of those bias, biases exist, but not necessarily that they have to sort of control you. Well, and the work that you're doing coaching and the work that we do just in our own association work. Mm-hmm. The work we do with our colleagues, I mean, we are either the providers of the urban myths or we're the ones that actually stop them from happening. Agreed. So the more that we can suggest that we're all in this for the same end, we have the students and the families in mind, we are upholding the academic standards of what it is to be study abroad, not just travel abroad. I think all of that work together continues to reform the next generation and possibly our successors and those that are coming along. Uh, you and I both know, Brooke, in, in any field, any industry, any set of business, you could find someone who is going to push the current or is going to focus on the negative versus the positive. Um, my hope is that the greater voice will be these rising uh, mid-career professionals and even the senior professionals who, like you and like I, have worked at a provider and also have a respect and were working at universities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and I think this is a great segue to sort of talk about one of your new initiatives, I will call it, but I'm going to let you tell us about it. But you're working on something called the Global Leadership League. And I think I, I love this because it, I, I'm, all, I'm very excited about more professional development, um, sort of self-reflective opportunities for us as professionals in this space um, to sort of grow so that we can sort of you know, move the needle forward in the work we do. So tell us what, what is the Global Leadership League? It's something I am really excited about, Brooke. It's a new way, I think, to serve the field and something I'm passionate about, which is just raising women leaders, but more importantly, strengthening just the leadership overall in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, the Global Leadership League was kind of a, a thought of about three or four women, as we do, over a mm-hmm. glass of wine in some exotic location, I'm sure. Um, we got to thinking about what could we do that would really be impactful because we as women like community and we like fellowship and we need these learning opportunities. And what could we do to really bring people together, all generations, uh, all together? 
And so with a little bit of encouragement, they suggested in my newly found free time, I might help kind of put together this new training organization. So the Global Leadership League is not uh, any but a couple months old. Uh, we are going to be offering online resources for women. Uh, it's a training organization you join at a really low entry cost. But the idea is that we are trying to give out training and resources that people can take to their offices or to their states or to their regions. And we can really start this discipleship of this information out using women who are already invested and engaged and wanting to kind of teach others about this as well. Um, we're going to hold a couple events right after this Denver conference, uh, NAFSA Denver conference in 2016 in June. And then we're going to do some peer mentoring circles where we can gather women from different generations and different areas in kind of a prescribed format over the course of a year. And that's something that all occurs without having to spend money on an event or spend money on plane tickets. Mm -hmm. um, our idea of this is really about access. How can we get people from the very beginning levels in organizations in our field, all the way up to those that travel, you know, to all of the big conferences. How can we get them engaged in this concept of women's leadership and training? So that's what we're working on right now. Um, some of the plans are set and some we're still in the development stages. Right. And so how, how can people get involved? Like how, how would you like them to sort of engage with this process? I know it's still in development. Yeah. Well, right now, if they would go to um, the website, which is just globalleadershipleague.com, and put their name into our interest list, I send out a newsletter once every week or two. And that just kind of keeps people apprised about what we're working on. We've also launched the um, sign-up forms for the events in Denver. And they'll find that at that website as well. Awesome. Great. I can't wait to share more of that. I hope a lot of... Um people get involved. I, I think my biggest advice when I'm talking to new professionals is every time there's an opportunity for you to get involved and meet people uh, in, in, at your level or above your level in, across the country, across the world, you should absolutely take advantage of those, especially when they're initially you know, free, quote unquote free. I know that this won't always be, but I, I think people underestimate the power of the community that we have in international education and I think as we grow as an as an industry I just said it as an industry <laughs> um, I, I, it gets harder and harder to form those me more meaningful professional relationships because there's so many of us these days and, and you know as someone who's been in the field you know quite a long time you you know even longer I, I can even get entrenched and sort of well I know my people you know I mean, yeah isn't you know you think oh well I'm done I've, I've met all the people I need to meet but that's not the case and so what I love about this is that bridging that I think sometimes a divide between the old guard and the new guard and sort of encouraging a space for very seasoned female professionals to work with and engage with sort of emerging which I think sometimes is hard to do because you feel like, oh, they're the untouchables. I mean, frankly, if I'm being really honest, I mean, I spent years sort of admiring you from afar, you know? <laughs> it's like, oh, I can never walk up to Cynthia Banks and say hello and introduce myself. I mean, she's Cynthia Banks. She's the founder of this company and she's doing all these things. And I think sometimes there's that aura around um, people who are very established in their, in their roles and in their career that you know they're they're a little bit untouchable and so, and now I just kick myself because obviously you're amazing I wish I would have just you know had had the courage and just walked up to you and said hello years ago but um, so I'm really excited that you're you're putting this together 
Brooke, you have an amazing way of making someone feel really good. Oh. <laughs> so, mean, I, I, you know, the truth works most of the time. So, yeah. Well, that's lovely. And I have to tell you, I, if anybody is listening and you think about I 25 years ago was the person looking at the other leaders in the field and the senior women and thinking much the same way, how would I ever meet them or how would I learn from them? And I hope that we can all understand that without this next generation of really talented men and women, um, we want our field to remain strong. And we have made amazing progress in 25 years. Um, the sky is the limit in terms of all the opportunities that we can offer to these students on these campuses. And so I say, hey, let's reach that hand down and get as many people pulled up as possible. So I do hope the league does that, Brooke, and, and thanks for your support. Yeah, just so many, isn't it? <laughs> it's so uh, it's really neat to be at a point where you pause and kind of have some opportunity to do some personal reflection. I was often thinking, I've been reading this book called Halftime, and I was thinking about what coaches do at halftime, you know, and try and rejig their game. And I feel a little bit like at age 49, I'm a bit in halftime. I'm in semi-retirement, but the question is, what will I be doing for the next 20 or 30 years? Um, so I'm having to really stretch my boundaries in terms of wanting to learn some new things, uh, things I struggle with right now. I had always promised I would write a book about my story and about being a young woman entrepreneur for some of the same reasons that, that you've mentioned. It's just really so good to be helpful to others. Um, but I think there's a lot to share in terms of that journey, but I'm struggling, you know, in writing that down. And so I would suggest that's one of the things that I'm really having to work on right now. Oh, good. Now my stress level will go up. <laughs> Never mind. I won't do it. Um, okay. So um, now for everybody else, I mean, this is the, the beauty of doing something like this is now people get to hear directly from you. What advice do you have for someone just getting started? Yeah, I would suggest looking back to the ways that I eventually got very involved in our association, NAFSA, and have at least been um, tapped to do other kinds of opportunities and projects that happened. I think it all started because somewhere I began to understand that if I thought I had a ton of limitations, there was a pretty good chance everybody else would see that and respond to it as well. So when jobs came up or opportunities, particularly in my state or my region, uh, I didn't think too much about whether or not I was qualified for those jobs. And I think women in particular have this tendency. What do they say? Women don't apply for a job unless we have 90% or 100% of the job skills listed on the, the job um, outline. Whereas, you know, men put their hand up if they have three of them. So my advice to people starting out is that the only way to be known in this field, the only way to feel part of what's going on is to legitimately go out and volunteer to do something. And that's step one, is that you have to just get yourself in a position where you're a part of an initiative or a project or maybe your state or regional teams. But more importantly, when you volunteer to do the job, this is step two, and it's probably the most important piece. 
you have to do the job really well. Because I often think people volunteer and then they don't show up and do the work they've been asked to do. It's like a group project in college. You're the only one doing the work. Um, I think it's important that, that people show up and do the work. And once you do a good job and people see that, you'd be surprised. They're always looking for good people to do good work. And so sometimes then you're tapped to do other things. So it's a part about being known, but it's also part about following through um, to what you said you would do. And, and that's really my suggestion. I don't think the field has as many barriers as people think that are in it, but that's just because it's not a formal process that I think um, college graduates think there should be. And Brooke, let me throw something else in there. This might be overlooked and why it seems so simplistic. I don't know why it seems so difficult sometimes. I often think people have to be, they have to like people and they have to be likable. Because in the end of the day, people get tapped by people that want to work with them and that like being around them and enjoy them. And so that, that shining personality that people have, that excitement they have for the work that they do, just able to get along with different kinds of people. Um, if you're successful at that, I think people also recognize and they say, well, we should get that person to come do more because they were so great to work with. Not only did they do the job, but they were a really great person to work with. So let's be likable and let's, let's like others. That's a good piece of advice. Thank you, Brooke. I've enjoyed talking to you. And that's a wrap, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. And Cynthia, thank you so much for being on the show. If you guys want to connect with Cynthia, you can do so over on LinkedIn. And I'll have a link to her profile down in the show notes, which you can find at InsideStudyAbroad.com forward slash Cynthia Banks. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can do so as at the new Dorothy over on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, if you're into that stuff. And you can, of course, connect with Inside Study Abroad. We have accounts on Instagram and Twitter as In Study Abroad and, and over on our Facebook page. Until next time, you guys, I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. I'll see you soon.